everybody who thinks on the left that they're being rational are not being rational. They are at best partially rational or pseudo-rational. You have not got training in logic and rationality, so you are using it badly as well. So the project I'm working on right now is basically a logic primer for people, like a simple primer to train people, thinking people, rationalists, in actual logic so that they can clean up their own act and use it better. Podcast Junkies, episode 267. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. If you're new to the show, this is the one where we talk to interesting voices in podcasting and get them to reveal a little bit more about themselves and what inspired them to join us all in the fantastic world of this potosphere. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with Brett Allen, host of The Brett Allen Show. Learned a lot about his motivation for starting it, all the different iterations he went through with that show, and a little bit of coaching at the end that I think was really valuable. We're going to have a follow-up call, so make sure you check that one out, 266. This episode is brought to you by Patreon. Creating a successful podcast shouldn't involve compromising your vision. Over 25,000 independent podcasters have found a home on Patreon. That's because on Patreon, people power your podcast, not advertisers or networks. On Patreon, your listeners subscribe to your show for access to exclusive benefits like ad-free episodes and bonus content. And in exchange, you earn reliable, predictable income independent of ads and network deals and a deeper relationship with the listeners who never miss an episode. Build and grow your podcast your way without having to sacrifice your vision for the big guys. Start your Patreon today at patreon.com. And that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. This week, I have a really fascinating conversation with Daniel B. French. He's the host of the Rhetoric Warriors podcast. And it's an idea that was born during the Trump era as a way to help people who are struggling with the type of volatile politics that splits families up, destroys relationships, and ultimately threatens the foundations of American democracy. In this episode, we discuss the modern version of rhetoric and the power of persuasion. Dan speaks to a seminal moment in his education, his involvement in comedy, and how his eclectic background has impacted his parenting. Wide-ranging, to say the least, and really got my brain fired up when speaking with Dan. Finally, Dan talks about the importance of using ethical persuasion to drown out unethical persuasion. I can't think of a more timely topic for everything that we're going through in this country. And believe it or not, I only connected with Dan several weeks before this podcast aired. And it's been a fascinating example of how when you're meeting the right people, sometimes you just know a future conversation is in the works. And that's what happened with Dan and I. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlett 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right, and the link will be in the show notes as well. Remember, full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 267. If you're enjoying this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcastjunkies. Also, make sure to check out new podcast apps as a way to contribute if you're using one of the new podcast apps that support direct contribution to the podcast host. That's me. Make sure you stay to the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. Let's jump into this persuasive conversation with Daniel. So, Air Doctor Professor French, host of Rhetoric Warriors, thank you for joining me on Podcast Junkies. Absolutely. As they say, good to be here. So, the world works in mysterious ways. As of a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago, we did not know <laughs> about each other. <laughs> yeah, it's the cyber galaxy. Comets just coming at you from everywhere. And then through the magic of Lunch Club... For the benefit of the listener, it's a, a online networking speed dating service, I guess is what you'd call it. Yeah, pretty much. Speed meeting service or <laughs> hopefully it's not dating because it's been very a lot of failure if it's been dating profiles. And most of these services usually get ruined by marketers. But thankfully, I've been using it uh, since last year, just after the pandemic hit. And uh, the caliber of the conversations that I've been having have been pretty high, as we were talking about. And uh, I saw what you were doing and uh, always interested to talk to fellow podcasters. It's the reason I started the show back in 2014. And uh, always good to learn about topics that I'm not that well versed in. So, so many places to start with you. What, what's your fondest memory of Kentucky? Oh, my God. Kentucky. You know, 
So when I first started doing stand-up years ago, it was in Kentucky. There was a comedy club there, and I think my first 10 minutes was about Kentucky, just having grown up there. Like, when people find out I'm from Kentucky all around the rest of the world, they they say, hey, oh, it's beautiful there. I drove through it once. I'm like, yeah, your family didn't stay for seven generations, did it? There's a reason you didn't stop. Yeah. No, they're always like, oh, it's gorgeous. I'm like, yeah, stop and talk to somebody. It's a cool state. I mean, it's just, um, it's not particularly my state, but it's gorgeous. It's got whiskey. And uh, I forget which episode I was listening to, but uh, one of your past episodes, I think, with the woman who was an African-American student of yours. Oh, Divine. Divine, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're talking about how you, you, the nature in which, or the environment in which you grew up, you would, it wasn't even, it's not even middle class, it's working class or. (laughs) Yeah, I was working class. My old man was a general contractor, home remodeler. And. Did you feel different growing up, this innate curiosity you had, or is it just some, anyone in your... Because you said you're the first in your family to go to college too, right? Yeah, first person to go to college. No, I Yeah, I grew up clearly not fitting my culture. Like I was five or six years old just looking at the adults saying, we've got to do better. Like it wasn't a particular intellectual culture, and I've always been a reader, and essentially that you know, when I was growing up in the 60s, early 70s, that was the only escape. TV was horrible. You know, it was just network TV and three channels. It was horrible. So the only the only escape was reading. And once you start reading and you realize just the, the massive wealth of books, you're like, oh, look at all these other people and places and that are better than Kentucky. So yeah, I grew up at you know, reading, I started with comic books and that kind of, you learn the whole fantasy stuff. And then I was raised Catholic. So I was forced into the Bible and then I escaped the Bible and started reading academics and intellectual stuff and fiction. And that essentially is what took me out of Kentucky, like just holding onto books. I just built a raft of books, floated into college, into grad school, eventually got a PhD and look at that. I'm out of Kentucky. Were there any that were transformational you know maybe at the time they had an impact that now looking back you'd look at them differently as an example like for me i remember in college i read the autobiography of malcolm x and i was like oh okay this is a little bit of a wake-up call here for me and i imagine it was similar for you yeah i think with i was a voracious reader again it was all escapism but i started with fiction and then rolled over into nonfiction as i got older I guess it was really grad school was the reading that sort of blew my brain open. And that's what that's kind of what got me into rhetoric is rhetoric is just this complete deconstruction of everything that you think because it deconstructs language, which is what you use to think with. And suddenly you're like, man, there's nothing solid around me at all. And you're just kind of like, ah, (laughs) I need somebody to show me at least possibilities. And there's so many great writers, intellectuals, that you just constantly get infused with idea after idea after idea. And you're like, I don't know. It's just a lot, a lot to choose So from. for the benefit of the listener, can you define the term rhetoric? Because it's not, it, I think when you explain it, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. But no one uses that term a lot. And, and I think having it come back into the vernacular is probably a good thing. In this day and age. Yeah, it's a cool word. I mean, the word now is persuasion. It's the closest match modern word. But the word rhetoric is the Greek word for persuasion. And persuasion has been studied ever since Aristotle in 353 BC. So he wrote the first book called The Rhetoric. Essentially, he didn't write the book. He did a bunch of lectures and then people gathered the book together and you know, essentially laid out the software for persuasion 2,500 years ago. It still works. It's just nobody studies it anymore. And so the word rhetoric and the study of rhetoric kind of went out of favor at, at a certain point, basically because the church in the medieval ages decided people did not deserve to persuade anything other than God. And you shouldn't have to persuade people to God. <laughs> so it left the, the university and it came back up as marketing and advertising and all that was sort of baby versions of rhetoric. But if you want the original really high octane software, you go back 
to rhetoric, the beginnings. And it's the simplest definition is that it's the study of hyper-designed messages. So if you think of over here, rhetorical people, they work on every single thing before they release it into the world, especially in high stakes, important situations. And over here are expressives, and they just talk. Like you and I are talking right now, you don't know what you're going to say the next sentence that's going to come out of your mouth. Your brain is just going to do it. And if it comes out great, awesome. If it doesn't, oh well. But rhetoricians don't like that. They're like, no, 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 we need to work on that message to make sure it's effective. Is there a, is it a positive or negative connotation to being a rhetorician? Or is it, if done correctly, it should be something that's, can be used for good or bad. My brand, Rhetoric Warriors, the slogan is the power of ethical only persuasion. And that's because the only way rhetoric as a word made it back up into the popular usage was through the negative, like political rhetoric, empty rhetoric, just rhetoric. And we used it a lot to describe other countries and foreign talk, like the North Koreans and all these dictators and their rhetoric. And anybody that's an extremist, you can suddenly see the language. You can't see it when you're doing it. I mean, the Democrats and liberals have a rhetoric. The GOP and the extremists have a rhetoric. Religion has a rhetoric. Everything has a way of talking that it's developed. And so typically it's seen as a negative in our culture. Like you're, it's just rhetoric. It's hot air. But the real, when you expand it and see what it really is, every single thing you say is a rhetorical message because you've crafted it in some way. And so you can craft it towards good or, or evil. But I break ethical and unethical because there are clearly unethical talk techniques. I guess the primary purpose of my brand is to try to take those out of the world as much as possible or prepare people to defend themselves from unethical rhetoric. Is that related to books like uh, Marshall McLuhan's Medium is the Message and Cialdini's like Persuasion? Are those variations of, of rhetoric or are they rhetoric or... What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, again, rhetoric is kind of the old mothership. It's the old Viking ship that had all this stuff in it already. And then when the media comes up, like there's media studies, McLuhan is media studies, and persuasion, which lots of times sits over in more science departments, social science departments that want to numerically study persuasion. But it's all rhetoric. It's all studying the act of messaging. So McLuhan says the medium is the message. He's basically saying, you decided to podcast, guess what? You are now going to be talking like a podcaster, which we do. We fall into, the nice thing about podcasting is not as defined, but you can just hear it in people's voices. It's like, I can't listen to TED Talks anymore because they're so rote and patterned. Even the vocal delivery is the same. How did this that happen? This is NPR. <laughs> there are thousands and thousands of people doing these, but they all sound alike. That's because it got rhetorically frozen. And now everybody has to learn that and talk within that, that medium. That's, you know, so yeah, there's great studies of, everybody is studying language. Philosophy studies language, anthropology, but they're all, you know, tromping on my ground. Rhetoric was doing this 2,500 years so ago. So you talk about your awakening when you went to college and how you started creating essentially a major and a master's for yourself because there was really nothing that you found at the time that fit what you wanted to build or, or the degree that you were looking for. Well, that was the PhD. The master's degree I got from the University of Texas at Austin was highly structured. That's a top five program in the country for communication and rhetoric. And really strong tradition, although it was kind of getting pushed around a little bit by new traditions coming in, modernity traditions and, you know, cultural studies and things like that, forcing it to expand some. But when I went, went to get my PhD at the University of South Florida, it was a brand new program. And so the guy that I basically went there with is a friend of mine, and he's a rhetorician. He had moved there from UT Austin. And so I, I went down there to finish my PhD with him. And, but he was the, really the only person teaching rhetoric in that department that I had any interest in. 
So I took a bunch of cultural studies, a bunch of interpersonal, a bunch of sociology. I took English courses and kind of amalgamized PhD, which is kind of good because at some point your courses just start to repeat. There's only so many things you can study within every academic area. And it's a lot, but it's still, you know, once you're in it for a while, you're like, oh, yeah, I've, I've taken this. And then uh, tell the story of the academics, the four academics who came to speak. <laughs> and your sort of aha moment there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's on my website. I talked about this because I came from working class. Again, first person in my family to go to college. I went to college to get out of Kentucky and to, you know, drink beer at the University of Dayton, which is all was a Catholic college and super fun. And so I didn't know what I was doing. And, but I, the working class has certain values for information. Like typically it's, you only learn things so that you can use them right away. Like my father was a general contractor, home remodeler. And so he was always learning new things so that he could put it into somebody's house. He was learning how to wire, he was learning how to do some plumbing. He was, but it was all activated information. And so when I got to grad school, Literally the first week I was at UT Austin, again, great grad school and huge resources and really smart people. But I was at a little seminar that they were putting on and it was four really smart people. And I was like, this is great listening to these guys. And at the end of it, I asked, so how do you get this information out to people? And they just laughed and they're like, ah, you know, we put it in scholarly journals and they read about like 12 people read it. And they thought it was funny, and I get it, why it was funny, but it also really irritated me, because I'm like, hey, I just came from Kentucky. These people need information. Trust me. Like, it would be really valuable so that they could defend themselves from the stuff that gets peddled to them. And So I always had that orientation, but it's a working-class orientation. If you're going to teach me something, I need to have a use for it. And then how did that color, like, your, did you see it as a mission? Did, did, did it? change like your direction or, or where you felt you were going to want to go after school after the program maybe i never really and i think most people don't i guess some people do but most people don't come into their graduate education especially they do it more to infuse themselves like you need to get prepared for something you have an academic interest in something so it's more about preparing yourself and some people look at the end product like, oh, I want to do this so that I can help this community. With me, it was more, I just have an unfocused obsession with learning. I can't, I have an OCD about learning. And when you get into linguistics and rhetoric and communication studies, endless amounts of things to study. But it's still not the only thing I study because my brain gets hungry and interested in other things. But I never really thought, oh, I want to learn this so I can go back to help Kentucky. It just irritated me that nobody else was trying to do that. And it really wasn't until I never really did politics. I never really did community work. I studied pop culture and entertainment. And I was very interested in TV and film and comedy and went and worked in Hollywood for a long time. But when I came back out and I started raising my kids here in Austin, and Trump arrived on the scene like a rhetorical Viking, a marauder, a barbarian just coming over the gates and broke open politics. And I watched people just scramble. They had no idea what to do. I'm like, you know what? It's time to pull up rhetoric again and see if I can teach it not to 18-year-olds, but to grown-ups out here in the world. And that was the genesis of the podcast. And I have a column on my website and a book out and I teach courses and do speaking about, hey, you know, there are things that will make us much more sophisticated and capable of doing political talk with each other, but you have to learn them. <laughs> they don't just naturally. And you also have to have inclination, not an inclination, but uh, a desire to want to be better, to learn more. I think some people get fixed and they're like, I've made it to where someone has said that I, I have success and I, I have what I need and I'm at the appropriate Maslow level. <laughs> so I'm good. What separates that person from someone who is constantly questioning things and saying, something's broken here. I don't know if I can articulate what it is. And I don't know if I have the language to get into these conversations, which can get pretty heated at times, whether in real life or on social. How do you prepare people to enter battle, for lack of a better phrase? 
I like the battle phrase. I think it makes sense to people. I think that's a good metaphor for what persuasion is. It's not the only metaphor, and persuasion can also be done with cooperation and community and you know all that good stuff. But it's clearly, especially in the political arenas, you are competing over limited resources, votes, right? So you have to go out and grab more votes, and the other side is trying to keep you from grabbing more votes, and so it's competitive. As far as the motivation that people have, like, again, I think it's clear just from my little brief bio history, I grew up in a place I did not particularly like. So I have an existential motivation towards improvement, and it never goes away. I was born with it. I saw it all around me. It infused me. I didn't choose it. And not everybody had that. There are people perfectly happy that I grew up with in Kentucky, but for me, it wasn't that. And I think about this with my kids who have grown up in Los Angeles and Austin, which are both great places, you know, they never <laughs> felt like, oh, I got to get away Why from are we leaving? <laughs> yeah. So I have an existential advantage, I think, in some ways, in that I am always looking for improvement in my life and my circumstances and the place where I live and the people around me. So I, I definitely have an improvement aesthetic. If people don't have that, and probably most people don't. Most people are, like you said, they'll get to a certain layer and they're okay. I got my job, got my house, then you know, I go fishing on the weekends, I get to do the things that I want, and they're okay. Well, then you have to get rhetorical with them and light a fire under them with persuasion, which I think Trump did. Trump activated politics in this country by being a really strong hero to a certain set of people and a really strong villain to the other set of people. We've been more into politics for the last six years than this country has been in a long time because it felt real. It felt like there was something to fear and that there was something on the other side to, you know, get out and support. So, at that point, it's much easier to get people involved in this topic because it's affecting their life for real, and they have an emotional attachment to it. And almost everybody has family strife built around politics. And that was kind of one of the first appeals that I made to people. It's like, hey, I can teach you how to go back, go out and retrieve that person who's lost to extreme politics. I don't care if it's easiest on the right because they're highly triggered and for rationalists like most of the liberal Democrats have adopted a rationalist rhetoric, they drive rationalists crazy because <laughs> they're like, they say things that are clearly demonstrably not true as if they are true. And you want to drive a rationalist crazy. That's the way to do it. <laughs> Is it because as a, rationalist you feel like it's hopeless and there's nothing really you can do about it because to affect or to get to the people who you need to explain the rationale of why that's not true it feels like so much work and it feels like they're going to believe what they're going to believe and you know like we're going to believe what we we're going to believe and, and never uh, the two shall meet or, or agree especially when all the news that, or the source of information that they get is from an organization or from TV or from a, a social stream that caters to their worldview. Yeah, it's, as I say, complicated situations require sophisticated rhetoric, sophisticated techniques. The normal things that you would do to persuade somebody else, like in rational world, which is look at the quality of the evidence, look at the quality of the claims, those don't work when somebody has been pulled over into what I would call skewed rhetoric, skewed logic. So quit doing it. Quit trying to persuade people with something that is doomed to failure. And what everybody does, because they don't have other options, they just abandon it, which is a horrible idea, because now that person gets to go out and vote with no other influences at all, which is dangerous to you if you are on the other side. So... I tell people, and that was the nature of why I wrote this book, because I kept trying to explain to people, there's so many different ways to persuade that you are not using, and you keep going back to the same one, because that's the one you want to use, and that's a bad rhetorical theory. 
like one of the basic rhetorical superpower theories is that persuasion and rhetoric isn't about what you want to say. It's about what the other side needs to hear. And a professional rhetorician would never crush their message into somebody's face if it's going to fail. They'll be like, well, what's this, how did this person need to hear me say this? What kind of message do they need in order to convert? And they would adapt. But most people don't adapt their persuasion. And so the book is called 21 Coliseums of Persuasion because I'm like, hey, there are 21 strong areas that you could use. Why are you using just the arena of logic over and over again and failing over and over again? I just hate to watch it. And so for someone who's new to this, what are some of the others, you know, we, everyone defaults to logic because it, it seems like the one that makes the most sense and would have the most impact. What are some of the others that folks may not be aware of that they can add to their arsenal? Well, I'll say this and I'll get to that question half a second. Everybody who thinks on the left that they're being rational are not being rational. They are at best partially rational or pseudo rational. You have not got training in logic and rationality. So you are using it badly as well. So the project I'm working on right now is basically a logic primer for people, like a simple primer to train people, thinking people, rationalists, in actual logic so that they can clean up their own act and use it better. Because it turns out if you can really clean up what you're doing, you can clean up even skewed brains. But you better have your act together within logic, and most people don't. So I'm going to do a a training book, and I tend to like to turn things into stand-up comedy. So I'm going to do a a logic training within a stand-up comedy show. It's like jammed in there like the avocado on a burrito or something. (laughs) But the the easiest one to think about as far as moving different arenas or different coliseums is get out of logic, quit trying to argue, move over to something like story. So a lot of times on my podcast, I do conversions. So I'll have the right, especially because they're, again, different than me and activated. And I will do conversions. So I I usually do it with story. And people are like, what does that mean? I'm like, well, try this. Harry, tell me about your politics. You know, tell me what you believe. And then I'll be like, well, what was your family's politics? almost always the same politics. They inherited their politics. And if they tell you that as a story, then you have an insight into them and you have some completely novel ways of going into it and say, well, do you think your dad or your mom was right all the time? Like, was that your experience? And they'll be like, no. Like, well, you've inherited things that you know aren't kind of, so now I'm doing a little logic, but it's based on story. And if they start to get triggery, then I pull back and I go back to story. It seems, yeah, it's fascinating because it's that thought of being triggered or if they see it as an, the extreme version of it, that they're being manipulated. So I, it's interesting. And I haven't gotten to those specific episodes yet because I want to talk about the format of the podcast as well. But just on that specific topic, it's a skill set, right? To be able to have that conversation, to take them down the path of story and then see, or maybe you see or notice, you know well enough by now what the signs are for someone that's getting triggered. <laughs> so you can pull back almost before they realize they're, they're about to be triggered. And so it feels like a fine dance because you sort of have to ease them into it because no one wants to admit they've been wrong all this time. And no one is, especially on a podcast, I would imagine even more conscious of being outed or called out for behavior. And so how do you handle that dance in a way that you know, respects them and, and, you know, as a good outcome for everyone involved. Yeah. Again, sort of my brand is ethical only persuasion. So I tell them exactly what I'm doing. I'm completely transparent. It's unethical to hide your goals and your techniques, your purposes. It's unethical. You should know that I am taking you through techniques. And so one of the other arenas is interpersonal relationship persuasion. And then when you learn interpersonal techniques as persuasion tools, then you do things like you don't call people out. You don't make them feel bad. You don't send them hurtling into a negative emotional experience because that is not good for the relationship. And so, you know, I will tell people I do a lot of validations. 
that validations are really strong interpersonal communication technique that can also be used within persuasion. You know, I'll thank them like gratitude statements and be like, you know, I really appreciate you being on here and talking about this because it fascinates me how somebody can believe things that are so different than what I believe. And this is absolutely true. I'm not making this up. It fascinates me as a rhetorician and it fascinates me how to move them around. And so I tell them very upfront exactly what I'm doing. And I have a little bit of what would be an ethos arena advantage. And then I'm a professor. This is what I do. I teach rhetoric. And so they know when they come on the podcast that it's to help people, you know, learn rhetoric. And I've even had conservatives on who are political, like politicians. And they'll be like, well, you're never going to convert me. And I'm like, well, I will convert you. You have no choice. I'm not going to convert you on your hardcore rational probably beliefs or the beliefs that you're holding on to, at least not quickly. But I will convert you. I will have an effect on you. And then I will show you how to do this to other people. Like I'm, I also have people on to do persuade the persuader. I'll have conservatives or people that want me to do things that I don't believe in. And I'll let them try to persuade me. And I'm not a contrarian. Like just being a contradictory contrarian person who won't move is unethical. So I'm like, you know, take me through it. See if you can do that. What's a recent example? Well, the first one I did was going back to Kentucky. I have a buddy who's lived there forever and loves Kentucky. So I'm like, you're going to try to persuade me to move back to Kentucky. And it was an hour of him listing all these great things about Kentucky. And it was fun. You know, I'm not moving back to Kentucky, I don't think. But <laughs> it was great listening to somebody try to persuade me about that. So when did you think that or become aware of podcasting? Were you listening to them a lot? And then how did that translate into deciding that that's a medium you wanted to play in as well? Well, I've been in entertainment since I was my early 20s. So I produced a bunch of podcasts when I was living in LA with, um, I was the, my first, like I said, I have a disassociative obsession with knowledge. And so my first area that I went in and super gleaned for comedy purposes was weight loss. I lost 125 pounds. And I did that by realizing I was completely ignorant about food and body chemistry and food and eating control. I knew nothing about it. And so I kept failing and I'm like, oh, this is ignorance. I should have recognized this earlier from being from Kentucky. And so I went and learned a bunch. I went and hung out in the paleo community and I started listening to a paleo podcast, The Paleo Solution with Rob Wolf. And even before that, I'd tried vegan because I was dating a vegan. And so I listened to some vegan podcasts and I'm like, these, these people don't sound like me. And so I knew that the podcast format was valuable for giving out information. And Rob Wolf in The Paleo Solution, he has a new thing called The Revolution Radio, I think, but super generous with information. I learned so much. And essentially, I used that free information to make a major change in my life. So I was like, wow, podcasting is so much better than teaching. Because teaching, I get to talk to 25 people who are 18 and don't care at that moment in their life because they don't need that information. But if you make the offer to somebody like, hey, I can teach you very quickly, some sophisticated rhetorical techniques that are not manipulation, they're ethical, and you can go and get your uncle to talk to you again. <laughs> That's a good offer to the people at that stage in life. So again, it goes back to its activated learning. And I think podcasts are great for that. Did you know from day one that you were going to be trying out different formats for each episode? Because you have the one where it's convert me or <laughs> whatever. Yeah, convert the conservatives. And then you've then got... I have persuade the persuader. Okay. Then I have uncensoring the stand-ups. So I have stand-ups on doing bits that they can't do in comedy clubs. Then I have comedy pros, people talking about their careers. And I have persuasion pros. So I have rhetoricians on to do training, basically teaching. It's because, you know, I do both entertainment and persuasion. And I get interested in a lot of things. And if I have a idea that sounds fun to me, I try it in the podcast and put it on a playlist slash sub-channel on YouTube. But it's all message manipulation. You know, it's all about can you manipulate messages to have effects on people? Comedians are doing that with, you know, comedy. They want to entertain people. And comedians get amazing at manipulating messages and scripts. So they can carve up, stand up will carve every word 
into a five minute bit and they're masters at that. So it feels like there's all these threads that are coming together to like paint the picture of how you ended up to be where where you're at now. So when did comedy come on radar and how early was that? And when did you feel like that's something you wanted to try as well? Almost exactly the same time I went to grad school. So I went to UT Austin, mid 80s, and stand up was booming. And I didn't get into stand up during grad school because I was so busy. But as soon as I got out, I went and taught actually back in Kentucky for three years at the University of Louisville. And I started, I went down, there was a brand new comedy club there. And I went down to check it out and I applied for a job as a door guy. And then for some reason during the interview, told them that I'd done stand up. And so like, great, come back tomorrow night. We'll put you up on open mic night. <laughs> and they introduced me to the stage manager. And at that point, I'm like, oh, guess I'm going to do stand-up comedy tonight. And went up and did it and was super fun and have done it ever since. So I was running both careers. I was teaching. I was a college professor. And then on the weekends and breaks and summer, I was doing stand-up all over you know, the South and the, and the Midwest. So I've always co-run those careers. And around 2000, I moved out to LA and uh, I taught for two years. I taught screenwriting at Cal State Fullerton in Los Angeles, or outside of Los Angeles in Orange County. And then I was just kind of done teaching. Like I admire teaching. It's a tough job as a professor. It's probably every level is a tough job. But I was just kind of done with it. I couldn't teach more 18-year-olds. And so I switched over and started working full-time in TV and working late night as a staff comedy writer for um, Dennis Miller and The Late Late Show and shows like that. And so really liked doing comedy writing, super enjoy it. And then I moved back to Austin to raise my kids, couldn't do that. So that's when I started the marketing agency and Rhetoric Warriors. You said you got up and you did stand up. So it's always fascinated me. It feels like one of those things that's on my bucket list as well, but must have had material you'd been working on or just if you or <laughs> nope. you just had ideas floating around your head you thought were funny and you're gonna test them out on stage i've always loved comedy i've always been comic i've always written and you know comedy and i've always done a bunch of uh i'm a quipper so i i constantly quip at people and i'd already started teaching so i like public speaking a lot i really enjoy public communication so it was already there. I, I had the skills of being able to go up and talk to people, and I knew how to generate comedy. I didn't know how to do stand-up. Like, there's a lot to learn once you get into doing stand-up. But it looked interesting to me, and it looked energized, and it looked like you could fail spectacularly. I'm like, well, that sounds like an experience. And so I kind of worked on stuff that day. My original materials, I had a brother who was 12 years younger than me, and he was in daycare at the time. And I would go pick him up from daycare. And for some reason, I got interested in this idea of whatever happened to the hippies? Like they became yippies and then preppies and now they're all working and they have money and they feel guilt because their kids are all, they're shipping all their kids off to daycare. Yeah. And they convince themselves that it's morally okay because they're learning social skills. You ever walk into a daycare at, you know, five o'clock when it's time to pick up the kid, they're not learning social skills. <laughs> they're learning survival skills. It's like the Apocalypse Now Center for Child Care. You know, some kid in the corner with his round nose scissors waiting to cut your hamstring. And it's just insane. And so I had that experience. I knew how to turn it into stand-up. And I was good at public speaking already because I'd taught for a while. So it wasn't too much of a stretch to get up and do stand-up. Although it was, you know, completely frightening. Like I remember walking towards the stage the first time going, I am not prepared for this. <laughs> yeah. As much as uh, you get butterflies when, or at least I, I remember getting them when I would deliver a prepared speech with slides that I knew what I was going to say, like every second of the 10, 15 minutes or half hour that I was going to be on stage going into it with some preparation, but the other half of the equation being the audience reaction, because you deliver what you're going to deliver and you get crickets. It's pretty nerve wracking to do that 30 seconds in. I can't imagine doing that for five minutes straight. <laughs> well, at that time, again, standup was huge. It was booming. And there were 200 people there that night on a Tuesday. And it was great. And they're drinking. And there's so many things in a comedy club environment that are made technologically for people to laugh. 
all you have to do is say something kind of funny and they want to laugh. If you can actually hit funny, you it just explodes. And I did okay. You know, I had definitely had lulls, which you don't have in stand up. Like stand ups, again, as message masters, they remove all the lulls. Like really great stand up, at least when I was coming up, sometimes the aesthetics have shifted, but was a, an intense laugh every seven seconds. Not a chuckle, not a like, ah, oh, it's okay, but like, cannot not laugh at this because yeah, it's buster, so yeah. funny. And when you see a, a stand up who has mastered that, like every line is great and they know when to release you know, in rhythm for each joke. It's just beautiful. Like they're so good at it. We were talking uh, in a previous conversation about Nate Bargatze, who's my partner I discovered recently and just technician, you know, just the ability to just pace the entire special, I think was fascinating. When you just realize that you've just been laughing for the past half hour, 45 minutes, like consistently, you're just like, oh, this this guy's good. Yeah. We talked about when we were chatting on lunch club, he's, He's become a really strong comic. I really like that guy. How do you put all this together? What you know, what you learned about comedy, what you've studied, being a rhetorician. How is that coloring your parenting? My parenting? Yeah. <laughs> I tell my kids, actually, I have a book, Persuasion for Parents. And I have all these projects and they're different stages of development, but that one is super fun because again, it's a really strong application. And almost everybody I say that I'm they're like, Oh, I needed that in the past. My kids were 20 years rhetorician experiments. And I told them, I designed you from the very beginning so that I could persuade you. And so that you could persuade me. Like I consciously put you into a rhetorical learning cycle. For example, I never tell my kids no. I did not do command and control with my kids because that's unethical rhetoric. Like using power, taking away somebody's choice, I don't care if they're a foot and a half tall. You're still being unethical to them. And so people are like, well, they can't think. And they can't. Yes, they can. You just have to reduce your rationality down to where they can think. So kids can think between like, and you hear sometimes in childbearing theory, like give them a range, like choose this or this or something in the middle. That's a rhetorical technique. You know, that's a logic technique. Now I have to logically look at two options, make a decision about which one I think is better, and then rationally choose. And I did, you know, that's one of the techniques I did with my kids. I never told them what they had to choose, but I limited it so that they chose what I knew that they were going to choose. That's great rhetoric. That's interesting because my partner's uh, she's studied education. She's got a master's in education, and it's she's given that same example. You don't say eat the broccoli. You like do you want the broccoli or do you want the string beans? <laughs> it's a completely different paradigm there. Yeah, again, it's a little piece of rhetoric persuasion that you know child therapy or child psychology has grabbed and is now using. They stole it from us. How <laughs> early can you start that? You know, I started training my kids while they were still pre-verbal. And people don't really understand this. Like when you really go into, that's why I like the whole persuasion for parenting things. You train your kids from the very beginning to talk in a certain way. If you want to command your kids, then you are training them to get into a power relationship, right? As opposed to, like, that's why I never said no. I would use a lot of humor because humor is natural to me. My daughter, at one point, we were getting ready to go to high school. I was driving them into high school and she was in band and she only needed her clarinet every other day, A day or B day. I'm like, do you need your clarinet? She says, no, it's a B day. I'm like, are you sure? Because, you know, and she's like, yeah, I'm sure. I'm like, okay, great. And so we're going there and about halfway there, she's like, oh. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, what's O mean? Let me guess. Let me guess what O means. O means I need my clarinet. That's what that means, right? And I just started comedy heckling her and she's like can you just yell at me like a normal parent i don't want to be heckled every time she was i tell my friends like my dad doesn't punish us he just hits me with comedy over and over again until i get the idea (laughs) and i'm like yeah that's what i do i use comedy as a training tool for you i imagine the experiment that approach has worked i would i feel it would build up a child to grow into a 
an adult who is able to think rationally for themselves, to defend themselves, to have intelligent conversations with their friends and also with their parents. And I think that, can, can you talk a little bit about how that's turned out and the result of what that's been? And the re- My kids are both in jail. <laughs> They're both the exper- drug experiment addicts. experiment failed miserably. Jail. They've, they've each murdered up to nine people. They're awesome. You can have conversations with them. They feel respected. They have a you know psychological foundation that's based on them, not what somebody else gives them. Their hardest problem has been that running into people all over the place that don't have those things, that weren't raised that way. My kids were constantly going, why are they acting like that? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I know. So my mom is a hard, you know, old school Kentucky, you know, super sweet. But with kids, she was completely dominant. And so when she came and visited once, my daughter was three or four, we were walking somewhere, my my mom's walking next to her, and we're getting ready to cross the street, and she grabs my daughter's hand and says, give me your hand, Quincy, and Quincy pulls her hand away, and she's like, why? Why am I giving you my hand? And she turned to me, and she goes, what did you do to this child? I'm like, give her the reason, and she's like, because I told you to. I was like, that's not a reason, that's power. Say, I'll think you're safer and it'll make me feel better if I hold your hand while we cross the street. And she'll be like, man. But she's like, I'm not doing that with a kid. I'm like, well, you're not going to get anything from my kids unless you do. (laughs) Is that book available, The Persuasion for Parents? I've kind of got it laid out in slides as a a sort of stand-up show. Again, it's I keep getting the pandemic. Thank God for the pandemic. It slowed my life down enough and made me broke enough, you know, because there's no marketing work that I could do this other stuff. And that's why I wrote the first book, because that's the launch book. But no, it's I've got to, you know, put it more into development so that it makes sense to other people. I could talk about it. I could do appearances and do like when I do stand up now, I don't really do material. I've got hours and hours of material, but it bores me. So I just work with the audience. I just go up and start asking questions. Sometimes I have an idea of something that occurred to me that week that I thought was funny and still is freshly funny to me. Like the last time I went on stage, I had the thought. So I walked up and I was like, do you ever notice that Winnie the Pooh doesn't have fingers? (laughs) Like he has a thumb, but the rest is just kind of an oven mitt. What happened to Winnie the Pooh's fingers? And so I had that question has made me laugh and I just forced the audience to come up with theories for the next 30 minutes. And it's super fun because it's, you know, people get involved. I get new information and my brain's really fast with comedy because I've been doing it for so long. So I can do these, all of these things as presentations. So if anybody wants to hire me to come in and talk about, you know, persuasion for parents, I can do it. But I just haven't got it written out as a book. Maybe yet. persuasion for podcasters. Well, clearly it is, right? You know, you're trying to convince people. So ethos is one of the super strong areas within persuasion is where you have to create a character that works for you with an audience, with a you know message that you're sending to that audience. Podcasters, they all seem like, you know, they want to seem wise and <laughs> Yeah, I always tell people like it's not an interview, it's a conversation. And you know, I should uh, just make everyone I've I've seen other podcasters do this and I probably should have done it earlier, but just like everyone that comes on is almost like a co-host, you know, because we're just like having this dialogue back and forth. Do you notice any change in episode one? Now, all these variations of different formats for the episodes in, have you changed, grown? Do you notice yourself as a podcast host acquiring different skills in the podcasting realm? Yeah, I would say I've sharpened, like I've done a lot of this for a long time. And like, I also teach conversational analysis. It's a really cool way of looking at conversation. So I I know a lot of this and I've always I like talking to people, so I do it a lot. When you get into an entertainment medium, like this would not work in TV. I would not be good in TV. I like a little bit longer answers. I like little complicated answers. I have a friend who's a professor, a rhetoric professor, and she was just on CNN. And I was watching it, and I'm like, yeah, she wants to give answers. And TV isn't about answers. It's about cool little quippy stories, you know? And... So she needs some training to adjust to that. Podcast, I love it. I love this idea of long conversations. I do think people still need 
to know that you know every turn that you take in that conversation needs to be filled up with something interesting and something useful. And so, like I worked in talk shows and we did interviewing, you know, as part of the talk show. It's an entertainment format, and people are always like, they don't know that that's produced. Like the guest comes in and we ask, "What story are you going to tell?" They practice it with the producer. If it's not good enough, the writers will punch up their life story. And they're professional actors, for the most part, entertainers, so they know how to tell a story with animation. So all that stuff goes into a good podcast. It just has a different feel to it. But I love great conversations. So that's essentially, for me, it's when I'm the podcast interviewer, it's getting myself into that space of what am I really interested in here and letting people know I'm super interested to know like I have interest about your stuff. Like you've been around tons of podcasts and you clearly know the technology and the business world of it much more than I do. So I would be interested in that information. If I were interviewing you, I would just, you know, get a vacuum and just be like, get, yeah, give me that information. Oh yeah. I'd definitely love to come on and just chat about all things podcast. It's been a fascinating shift for me because I was in corporate for almost 20 years. I mean, I was just, I worked at the, in marketing departments and I just could, I would get promotions where I could just never find my ways. There was always like an entrepreneurial bug. I would leave at times and then cash out my 401k, run it to zero and be like, that didn't work. I come back again, <laughs> try the dot com <laughs> thing. I even moved to Atlanta to be a, a general manager at my half brother's construction company. So I was like, I learned how to do takeoffs from blueprints and I was climbing scaffolds, <laughs> managing nice. like masonry yeah. teams, pretty wild. So yeah, it's always been, but I think podcasting has been interesting because it's always, it came from my love of electronic music. I grew up DJing with vinyl and turntables. I think I mentioned that when we talked and that led to, oh, I want to create a mobile app for DJs. Oh, I want to create a podcast so I can interview DJs. And I'm like, that's going to be hard. They're globetrotting. They're never going to, I'm never going to be able to track them down. Podcasters are interesting. I studied acting. I studied acting for like three years in New York and I loved Inside the Actor Studio. So it's just weird when like all the things start to come into play. And I'm like, what about Inside the Actor Studio, but for podcasters? <laughs> it's just like podcast junkies. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Let's figure out what, what, yeah, what makes, what makes, what makes them tick. And, and when I did video from day one, I used Skype with call recorder. So I was like, I want to see their faces. I, want, I just feel like they don't know who I am. Why would I waste an hour long conversation with audio only? get no feedback and you know lose that opportunity to build relationships so just all these kind of things and and that's here we are eight years later still still doing it and it's yeah i'll definitely pull you onto my podcast i will glean this information because it's to me again moving across mediums you know the McLuhan things as soon as you move in and you like somebody has an expertise in that medium a rhetorician is going to want to go hey tell me all that expertise so that i can understand that medium and yeah, that's super cool that you got that. I do love this idea of the really, really long form conversations and just finding the Joe Rogan stuff. And just like, even if it's like Kanye West, I'm like, okay, you get 15 minute sound bites of this guy, or five minute sound bites, and he sounds like a raving lunatic. And Joe has said this before on his show. He's like, you can't go three hours without saying something meaningful or, or at least <laughs> bullshit gets exposed or you just realize the person's just not interesting, but just giving the person like enough of a stage and saying, look, if you got something interesting to say, like, and you can't do it in three hours, you're probably not that interesting of a person. If you can't, <laughs> something can't come out. And I think that skill, honing that skill, I think doing an hour long podcast and doing a three hour one is completely different maybe not that different but you used to need to like exercise different muscles and be able to like hold that that uh, conversation because one of the things we in podcasting i'm conscious of is like the listeners there it's the listeners he's, he's there's still there's like three people in this conversation right now it's me you and the listener and i'm just i'm always conscious of that like and like in comedy right you don't say it just like is it getting a response and you get that immediate feedback but with podcasting it's a challenge because you can't hear like someone say yeah i love that it's after the fact so you have to just kind of like glean the information that came from previous or the feedback you got from previous shows and be like okay i'm going to try to do something different in this one and make it continue to make it more interesting i'm really fascinated by that yeah i agree with all that i think it's a cool format for that stuff and it's just going to emerge more and more. Like you'll find people who really figure out some angle into it. And I think Rogan has. I think, I, you know, he's not really my taste. I think he's a bump down for some of the things that I want to, you know, hear about. But I totally, I like what he does and the more power to him. 
What's it called? Do you format? still have find enough time to find other shows or do you have a, a stable of shows that you like that are interesting for you? Because I think what I find is I'll listen to something, one episode will be interesting, then I'll listen to the rest of the shows and I'm like, eh, like the, this is just that one guest they had that was cool. So it's it's been challenging for me to find someone who's consistently like bringing on thought-provoking guests. Lex Friedman does a little bit of that. He had Daniel Schmachtenberger on recently and just, I, I like people that when I hear them, my head hurts a little bit because I'm just like, I don't get this completely but i think i want to learn more about it and i want to like to your point earlier like stimulate my brain yeah i'm a tough audience because i do have a high level of stimulation both from entertainment and from the intellectual side so i used to like you know i used to listen to mark maron and a lot of times there's guys i knew who were on there so it's kind of interesting to listen to them but there's a big difference in people that are walking up with prepared material that's been honed down to just the best stuff and people who are wanderers. If you're going to wander and I'm listening, you're not really giving me value. Like I'm looking for information. I'm an information gleaner and I'm looking for high level entertainment. I can't watch. I've seen like David Tell and these guys like doing the best of the best of the best. And my brain is tuned into it now. And if you go below that, you know, you're talking about Bargazzi. I thought his last two things were great, like the 15 minutes and then the hour follow-up. And then I went back and looked at his stuff outside of that. And it's not that it's bad, but it's not as good as that. But I was the same way in literature when I was an English undergrad. Like when you read even great writers, Hemingway or Fitzgerald or whatever, they have a lot of trash, you know? I remember reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez and read the first thing I read was a hundred years of solitude. And the second thing I read was love in the time of cholera. And then everything <laughs> is such a cliff drop off after that. I'm like, wow, like I should have just stayed with those. And so I'm kind of a 10% of somebody's, you know, their catalog. And so it's hard with podcasts, but you know, then you'll go back in and like all of a sudden, you know, Marin's interviewing, Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. And you're like, oh, okay, I'll listen to this. Yeah, again, there's so. some, you want some familiarity, I think, for those types of shows. And, and hopefully it's something that you haven't heard before and that, that makes it all the more interesting. A couple of questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? You mean just in general? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, what have I changed my mind about? Give me an example of something. Oh, it could be. I, I used to drink coffee and now I only drink tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have to be anything mind-blowing, but just something where, you know. I like to go sit at Starbucks up here in Austin in the Arboretum and just watch people walk in and out and interact. And there's a Trader Joe's also in my vision, so I'm sitting outside. And I like to just sort of watch all these people and wonder what, you know, everybody, if I get a little bored with my work, I watch somebody and go, I wonder what that person does or is or what's the worst thing they've done in their life. <laughs> I don't know if that's something I've changed my mind about, but it's something I do lately. Yeah. No, it's interesting because it's fascinating, this idea of stories. You know, one of the things we have as like a mission statement is to help a million people find their voice with the work we do with the agency and just podcasting, I think is a really good medium because it's, I'm not going to touch a million people, but I can help people start shows and they'll have big audiences and hopefully it's like the amplification or the network effect. But you know, I always say that if you go into a bar, there's 50 people in there, that's 50 stories. You just got to ask the right questions and you just have to be interested in people. And, you know, if you're skilled enough, you can get something out of most folks. Yeah, there's always something there. That's why I said, like, when I do stand-up, I'll just find people at a table and be like, what's your deal? <laughs> and we're off and we're running. Like, I remember I had a woman older, like, woman easily in her 70s little tiny woman, cotton hair, and there's two big dudes who are also pretty old sitting next to her. And I'm like, what's the deal here? Who are you people? And uh, she's like, I'm Virginia. And I'm like, where are you from? <laughs> she's like, Virginia. Like, uh, we're running. This is going to be great. And I'm like, who are the two guys next to you? And she's like, those are my idiot sons. And yeah, I talked to her, I swear, for an hour, and it never got old. So yeah, I, I love to dive into other people and just see what's there. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? You know, you mentioned the word manipulation and rhetoric gets hit with that all the time. It's the first response almost everybody has. A lot, a lot of times like on online dating, I'll meet somebody and they'll find out what I do and they're like, what? Are you going to manipulate me? And I'm like, hell yes, I'm going to manipulate you. I got to use these skills for something. Manipulation is one of those words that it's really unethical manipulation 
then there's completely ethical, interpersonal, like everybody affects everybody else consciously. And it only becomes unethical if you're hiding it. To me, it's like none of this is manipulation. When I talk to people and I'm nice to them or validate them or express gratitude, it's real. And sometimes it's amplified because I want them to feel it. I want to communicate it strongly. But that's not manipulation. So that word manipulation is horribly misunderstood, and it becomes a uh, roadblock to people learning really good influence techniques. What are your thoughts on uh, NLP? Is that unethical manipulation? <laughs> yeah, because it, you know, it, it's trying to go into the micro-programming of things, and it's not telling people you're using it. It's like this pickup artist stuff. You know, oh, here's a program. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so blunt, and I don't believe it anyway. But NLP is just micro, you know, language use, and I find it again to be fairly not that useful. But. Well, I want to thank you for for coming on. Uh, the hour flew by. <laughs> yeah, fun conversation. Where do you think we're headed? I I know it's an open ended question, but I, I'm interested in your opinion specifically because you've had conversations with people, you know, these conversion episodes and people who probably have some perspective on where we are headed as a society and I'm, I'm just curious if you kind of look where we're at and where we're going and <laughs> is it trending up is it trending down like i'm just curious what your thoughts are we could easily break fascist authoritarian because that's a really strong rhetoric it's a story rhetoric and to me my theory that, that helps explain it the best is that it's been around forever, right? The Nazis used it. The Italians used it. The Spanish used it. It was huge in the 20s. Like, it became this massive political movement. It has natural power for humanity. There's something about this story of conspiracies and hidden villains and this group versus this group, and they're trying to take our lands and all this kind of stuff that has power to people. What has happened, America's never really had to deal with it. And this is the first time it's gotten any real traction. We've always had it. We've had a KKK, we've had white supremacists, but they've been in basements and hiding from the rest of us. What happened was the cable news network is new, and then digital media is new. So the distribution system has opened up. There's no gatekeeper. You couldn't have gotten Trump on the CBS Evening News when Cronkite was around. He would not have gotten you know the ability to talk 15 times a day on little tweets through Cronkite. So we have not yet come to grips with what the distribution system means. And anything can get dumped in there. So that's part of, again, the Rhetoric Warriors Project. In some ways, you can think of it as it's a, a way of cleaning up the pollution in our public discourse streams because they're horribly polluted now. And people can't tell the difference between a good person offering them good things and a bad person saying they're offering them good things. Good point, yeah. They can't distinguish. So we need a democracy 2.0. Like you have to fix the easily broken parts of democracy because it's been hijacked. And you need a public discourse 2.0. Or you need an audience 2.0. Like they need to, people need to be able to defend themselves and see this stuff, which everybody wants to sell as the answer, but I'm not so sure. This is really sophisticated stuff. My grandmother could not run it. She did not defend her brain well. And Jimmy Swaggart at the time, who was the evangelical of the moment, got in there and took some of her money. Took a lot of people's money. So I hope, you know, I'm doing my part of trying to give people the software, you know, talking about this stuff. And hopefully everybody sees that it's important because, yeah, we could definitely, you could definitely go right at any time. You could definitely go fascist or authoritarian. Democracy's not easy. Yeah. And I love the, sort of the take of it on it as rhetoric as warriors right because it is a bit of a battle that we're going through and i think training people with this skill set is going to be really important i don't know where else this new public discourse 2.0 is you know what's the new version of like the dialogues <laughs> like where's this public square where people are having these enlightened conversations because they feel that, like the people that need to be in them or don't know they exist don't have any desire to be in them and can't see the value in them. So it obviously feels like this is a bigger question that won't be answered <laughs> as we wrap up this conversation. But for people that do want to learn more about what you're working on, what's some of the best places or, or some places we can point them to? 
Yeah, definitely go to rhetoricwarriors.com. I try to collect as much as I can there. The podcasts are all free. And if you see the one that are called Rhetorician Files, that's me interviewing another rhetorician. Usually, like this week, I did a podcast about the rhetoric of money with my buddy, David Payne, Dr. David Payne. And it's just, if you want to get the more, like that is as sophisticated as you're going to get in rhetorical analysis. If you want the basics, you know, maybe start with the book. There are a lot of books out, you know, about rhetoric. There are a lot of courses you can take. Even community colleges teach basic rhetoric. They call it public speaking, but it's rhetoric. That's the baby version that gets back into universities as you get taught some public persuasion or public speaking. You'll do a persuasive speech, something like that. There's lots of resources. I I don't really collect them. At some point, maybe I'll put together a bibliography and put it on the site. But if you just start listening, you'll start to get you know some of the the basic principles, and hopefully you can use those to again go out and rescue your aunt <laughs> from her. Yes, it's definitely when the student being ready and the teacher appearing and all that stuff as well. So we'll make sure we have uh, links to all those resources in the show notes. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. I do feel it's uh, ongoing conversation, so I wouldn't be surprised if we had a follow up at some point. But uh, thanks for uh, sharing a bit of your wisdom here. Cool. Yeah. Super fun. Always fun to talk about this stuff. Thanks for Daniel for coming on the show. Always appreciated when guests get to share their story and spend an hour with me. Full show notes, a lot of resources mentioned here, podcastjunkies.com forward slash 267. Special thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Patreon. Over 25,000 independent podcasters have found a home on Patreon, where your listeners subscribe to your show for access to exclusive content and benefits while you earn reliable income independent of ads. Start your Patreon today at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Focusrite, and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Scarlet 2i2 Pro. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. Tune in next week. Returning to the show, Esprit Devora, host of the Women in Tech show. And if you've made it this far, you're no doubt looking for this week's retention hashtag. Let's go with Persuading Dan, and you can tag him at Rhetoric War. That's R-H-E-T-O-R-I-C-W-A-R. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Love you guys. Talk to you next week.